Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. How much do any of us, save for a few archaeologists, know about the discovery of the Gnostic text containing the writings of Mary Magdalene and John the Apostle, or the Dead Sea Scrolls, the search for which inspired a treasure hunt worthy of an Indiana Jones movie, or an ancient treasure guide called the Copper Scroll, which may very well lead to a billion dollars worth of gold and silver buried in 64 locations, mostly on the West Bank, just before the sacking of the Second Temple of Jerusalem by Rome. Not many of you, I'll wager. I've got one heck of a story for you. I'm taking you back nearly 2,000 years to Jerusalem. It is the year 70 A.D. The city of Jerusalem is the center of Jewish life and religion, as well as other faiths, not to mention Roman influence. In and around Jerusalem, different religious sects thrive. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes, and the early Christians who followed the teachings of Jesus. In the year 66 A.D., the Jews rose up against Roman power in Judea, and the Romans, in retaliation, began destroying towns and fortresses outside of Jerusalem for taking part in these revolts. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish life and held all the wealth of the tiny empire, much of it in gold and silver. Over a period of 600 years, tons of gold and silver had been accumulated. No doubt Solomon's treasure was a good part of that and all this was stored in the hidden lower catacombs of the temple. The Romans were aware of this treasure. In fact, the Roman governor, Gessius Florus, seized money from the temple and arrested several Jewish leaders, and that was the flashpoint that kicked off the wars, which would take the lives of over one million citizens and soldiers over a period of four years, according to the historian Josephus. During this time of war, prior to the siege which began in April of 70 A.D., the Jewish leaders reading the tea leaves, realized that the temple was in danger of being ransacked and destroyed, so they arranged to remove the precious artifacts and much of the gold and silver, which they measured in tons, to underground hiding places both inside and outside of Jerusalem. Sixty-four hiding places, to be exact, many of the stashes hidden in and around the area we know of today as the West Bank. The West Bank, which is about the size of Delaware, is located on the west bank of the Jordan River and bordered by Israel to the west and Jordan to the east and Egypt to the south. Palestinians rule the west bank and the Gaza Strip, a 140-square-mile strip of land located in the southwest corner of Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. Jerusalem is considered by international law to be a part of the west bank, with East Jerusalem being claimed as a capital by both Israelis and Palestinians. Getting back to those 64 hiding places, one of the biggest archaeological discoveries which ever took place was the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran in 1947, followed just a few years later by the discovery of the Copper Scrolls, which, when translated, were shown to be a recording of the places where the treasure of the Second Temple was hidden. An incredible find, which is rarely talked about today. I'll give you an example. CBN, the Christian Broadcast Network, offers a DVD set called The Treasure of the Second Temple, which tells the story of the Roman attack on and ransacking of the Second Temple in A.D. 70, leaving us to assume that all that treasure of Solomon and 600 years of Jewish wealth was sitting there ripe for the taking for the Romans. And yes, there was a fortune in artifacts taken by the Romans, 
most notably the seven-branched solid gold menorah, the golden table of the showbread, and a lengthy list of other artifacts which were central to the Jewish faith. It was all recorded by Titus, including the huge parade of the victors and their miles-long parade of newly acquired slaves into Rome. According to Josephus, there were 97,000 Jewish captives, among them Christians, which, when sold off, provided the seed money for the construction of the Roman Colosseum, where many of those captives were used to entertain the populace of Rome, as they were offered to starving lions. The CBN DVD traces the stolen treasure back to Rome, then to Carthage, and then from Carthage to Byzantium. But there is no mention of the treasure in gold and silver buried beneath the sand in the mountains and deserts surrounding Jerusalem, or the copper scroll. Was the copper scroll a hoax? How was it found? What are the clues to the location of each treasure stash? And how much gold and silver was involved? We have the answers to all those questions coming right up after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. Although it's another story for another time, my interest in that time lies mostly in early Christian beginnings. I did one episode here called The Legend of the Three Marys, and yes, it's just legend, but it's very interesting, and it places Mary Magdalene, Mary Salome, the wife of James, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, escaping the Roman purge across the Mediterranean in a rudderless, sailless boat. I placed a six-minute segment about the Gospel of Mary at the very end of this episode so it doesn't interfere with our central theme here regarding the missing treasure. These times in Roman-held Judea were very difficult and very explosive times for the city and the cultures of Jerusalem. The Gnostics collide with our Christian beliefs, but mostly I find them supportive and interesting. They are a treasure, the first really important written treasure from that time. I mention them because the excitement the finding of the Gnostic Gospels created led to other finds soon after. I was searching for nuggets of information about the Gnostic texts and their discovery when I came across the mention of the Copper Scroll, which was a byproduct of all the archaeological excitement over the finding of first the Gnostic text, and then a few years after the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here is the story of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In late 1946 or early 1947, Bedouin teenagers were tending their goats and sheep near the ancient settlement of Qumran, located on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea in what is now known as the West Bank. One of the young shepherds tossed a rock into an opening on the side of a cliff and was surprised to hear a shattering sound, as the legend goes. He and his companions later entered the cave and found a collection of large clay jars, seven of which contained leather and papyrus scrolls. An antiquities dealer bought the catch, which ultimately ended up in the hands of various scholars who estimated that the texts were upwards of 2,000 years old. After word of that discovery got out, Bedouin treasure hunters and archaeologists unearthed tens of thousands of additional scroll fragments from ten nearby caves. Together, they make up between 800 and 900 manuscripts. Between the early 1950s and 1956, archaeologists and Bedouins vied with one another to find more scrolls, and eventually a library of over 800 different manuscripts was recovered. The search was wild and crazy. The Bedouin were the clear victors in this quest. In one case, the Bedouin explored the richest cave, now known as Cave 4, 
right under the noses of archaeologists who were excavating the nearby ruins of a site called Qumran, hoping to learn more about the scrolls from this ancient settlement as it emerged from the sand. It was a quest worthy of an Indiana Jones movie. Of the 800 manuscripts, fewer than a dozen were in any sense intact. The rest were mere fragments, about 25,000 of them, many no bigger than a fingernail. Acquiring these fragments from the Bedouin turned out to be more complicated than acquiring the intact scrolls from the initial catch. Yet it was critical that all these fragments end up in the same place to assure that each manuscript could be maximally reconstructed. An arrangement was worked out between the authorities and a Bethlehem antiquities dealer named Kondo, who had become the middleman for the Bedouin, to purchase their finds. In this way, all the fragments were eventually acquired by what was then the Palestine Archaeological Museum in then-Jordanian-controlled East Jerusalem. Beginning in 1953, an international team of young scholars was assembled in Jerusalem under Jordanian auspices to sort out these thousands of fragments. Most of the seven-man team, included no Jews, were Catholic priests. In retrospect, their accomplishments were remarkable. While the task of identifying fragments will never be completed, even today new pieces are being fit into the puzzles. By 1960, this team of scholars had not only identified the pieces of the 800 documents and arranged them as well as they could, they had also deciphered and transcribed them so that they could be easily read. Meanwhile, by 1958, Israeli and American scholars had published the seven intact scrolls from the initial catch. Most of the intact scrolls were easily readable by anyone who knew Hebrew or, in one case, Aramaic. The fragmentary scrolls, however, presented a more difficult problem. These two were mostly Hebrew, though some 25% were in Aramaic, a closely related Semitic language that was the vernacular in Palestine at the time of Jesus. But, on average, about 90% of each of these documents were missing, and there were few obvious fragment joins. Letters were frequently dim and uncertain. That the scroll team was able to produce transcripts of these fragments with some reconstructions of missing parts in so short a time is an enormous scholarly accomplishment. By 1960, the contents of the collection were reasonably clear. More than 200 Dead Sea documents were books of the Hebrew Bible. These varied in size from a tiny scrap to a complete book of the prophet Isaiah. Other manuscripts were non-biblical books, known from later medieval copies, such as Jubilees and Enoch. In the case of such text, the Dead Sea Scroll fragments could be reconstructed relatively easily since the later copy formed a template into which the fragments could be fit. But hundreds of Dead Sea documents were completely unknown. It is these that proved most fascinating, both to scholars and to the public. Most of the documents were written on either goatskin or sheepskin. A few were on papyrus. One especially intriguing intact scroll, engraved on copper sheeting, the one that inspires our story today, identified over 60 sites of buried treasure. The various texts were bewildering, previously unknown psalms, Bible commentaries, calendrical texts, mystical texts, apocalyptic texts, liturgical texts, purity laws, rabbinic-like expansions of biblical stories, and on and on. But how to make sense of it all? From the outset, it seemed clear that some of the scrolls reflected the views of a distinct Jewish sect, 
which scholars soon identified as the Essenes, an obscure Jewish movement described in some detail by the first-century Jewish historian Josephus. Athanasius Yeshua Samuel, a Syrian Orthodox Archbishop of Jerusalem, bought four of the original Dead Sea Scrolls from a cobbler who dabbled in antiquities, paying less than a hundred dollars. When the Arab-Israeli War broke out in 1948, Samuel traveled to the United States and unsuccessfully offered them to a number of universities, including Yale. Finally, in 1954, he placed an advertisement in the Wall Street Journal under the category Miscellaneous Items for Sale that read, Biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 B.C. are for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution by an individual or group. Israeli archaeologist Yigal Yadin, whose father had obtained the other three scrolls from the initial collection in 1947, secretly negotiated their purchase on behalf of the newly established State of Israel. Unfortunately for Samuel, much of the $250,000 he received went to the U.S. Internal Revenue Service since the bill of sale had not been properly drawn up. The origin of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written between the 3rd century B.C. to the 2nd century A.D., remains the subject of scholarly debate to this day. According to conventional theory, they are the work of a Jewish population that inhabited Qumran until Roman troops destroyed the settlement around A.D. 70. These Jews are thought to have belonged to one of the four distinct Jewish groups living in Judea before and during the Roman era, which we just identified earlier as the Essenes. The Copper Scrolls were discovered four years after the Dead Sea Scrolls at the back of one of the caves in which some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. It was found in 1952 in Cave 2 in Kerbet, Qumran. While most of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found by Bedouins, the Copper Scroll was discovered by an archaeologist. It was the last of 15 scrolls discovered in that cave, and is thus referred to as 3Q15. The corroded metal could not be unrolled by conventional means, and so the Jordanian government sent it to Manchester University's College of Technology in England on the recommendation of English archaeologist and Dead Sea Scrolls author John Marco Allegro for it to be cut into sections, allowing the text to be read. He arranged for the university's professor, H. Wright Baker, to cut the sheets into 23 strips in 1955 and 1956. It then became clear that the rolls were part of the same document. Allegro, who had supervised the opening of the scroll, transcribed its contents immediately. It appears that someone was assigned with the responsibility of noting down where tons of the treasure was hidden. An educated guess is that they wrote each location on a hide, then someone was told to find a more permanent method of preserving the locations of the stashes. They had the ability to create thin copper sheets using a combination of 99% copper and 1% tin. And onto these sheets, the directions to the hiding places were entered using the equivalent of a hammer and a chisel-like tool that could make the letters without puncturing the metal. This process would have taken months and was likely done before the Roman invasion and destruction of the temple. The first column of the Copper Scroll reads, In the fortress which is in the Vale of Achor, forty cubits under the steps entering to the east, a money chest at its contents of a weight of seventeen talents. Expeditions have tried to locate the treasure during the sixties and seventies, but not much is available on the outcomes except that nothing was found. 
and you can bet that those expeditions were monitored closely by authorities, who no doubt had officials embedded in those expeditions. Many of the locations used landmarks and vague hints to places which have been lost to time over the past 2,000 years. Old cities were destroyed, waterways were changed, names of places changed, and landmarks disappeared. Most of the vocabulary found on the Copper Scroll is simply not found in the Bible or anything else we have from ancient times, so researchers had to piece it together. For instance, one description might read, in the gutter which is in the bottom of the rainwater tank. Another one, in the second enclosure, in the underground passage that looks east. A third one, in the water conduit of the northern reservoir. And there are those who have suggested that the treasure never actually existed, that the copper scroll is simply a work of fiction. Even if the treasure did exist, we don't know where it came from or who it belonged to, but most believe that the scrolls refer to the temple treasure, hidden for safekeeping before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 A.D. The text is an inventory of 64 locations, 63 of which are treasures of gold and silver, which have been estimated in the tons. For example, one single location described on the Copper Scroll describes 900 talents, T-A-L-E-N-T-S, which represents 868,000 troy ounces of buried gold. That would be tons of gold. The value of one ounce of gold today is in excess of $1,850. That puts this stash, if the scroll is true, at a value of over $1 billion today. Tithing vessels are also listed among the entries, along with other vessels, and three locations featured scrolls. One entry apparently mentions priestly vestments. The final listing points to a duplicate document with additional details, and that other document has never been found. The following English translation of the opening lines of the first column of the Copper Scroll shows the basic structure of each of the entries in the scroll. The structure is general location, specific location, often with distance to dig, and then what you'll find there. Here's the first entry. In the ruin that is in the Valley of Achor, under the steps with the entrance at the east, a distance of 40 cubits, a strong box of silver and its vessels, with a weight of 17 talents. A talent is 130 pounds. That would represent over 2,000 pounds of silver. And that was in catch number one. There's still 63 to go. There is a minority view that the cave of letters might have contained one of the listed treasures, and if so, artifacts from this location may have been recovered. Although the scroll was made of alloyed copper in order to last, the locations are written as if the reader would have an intimate knowledge of obscure references. For example, consider column 2, verses 1 through 3. In the salt pit that is under the steps, 41 talents of silver. In the cave of the old washer's chamber, on the third terrace, 65 ingots of gold. As noted above, the listed treasure has been estimated in the tons there are those who understand the text to be enumerating the vast treasure that was stashed where the Romans could not find it. There was much confusion and consternation among the researchers as to the directions, and here's some examples. In the ruin in the valley of Achor, beneath the staircase that ascends toward the east, at a distance of forty brick tiles, there is a silver chest and its vessels, weighing seventeen talents. According to Eusebius's Onomasticon, 
Achor, perhaps being a reference to an ancient town, is located to the north of Jericho. However, in relation to the valley of Achor, Eusebius's view is rejected by most historical geographers who placed the valley of Achor to the south of Jericho, either at the modern El Bukea or at the Wadi and Nuima. Elsewhere, Eusebius places Imakakor, the valley of Achor, near Galgal. The ruin in the valley of Achor could be one of a number of sites, the ancient Beth Hegla, or what is known as the threshing floor of the Atad, the most famous of all the ruins associated with the nation of Israel and being about two miles from the Jordan River, or else the ancient Beth Araba, and which John Marco Allegro proposed to be identified with Ain Garaba, while Robertson Smith proposed that it be identified with the modern Ain Alfeshka, or else Kerbet Esumra, or Kerbet Qumran. Another ruin at that time was the fortress Hyrcania, which had been destroyed some years earlier. So as it winds up, for that one search, you'd have to drop your shovel in ten different places and be looking out for Apaches over your shoulder every second. Not an easy search. There were several monuments of renown during the waning years of the Second Temple, that of Queen Helena, that of Johannan the High Priest, both of which were in Jerusalem, or else outside the walls of the ancient Old City. The Hebrew word used for burial monument is nephesh, which same word appears in Mizna. One description reads, In the great cistern within the courtyard of the peristyle, along the far side of the ground, there is sealed up within the hole of the cistern slab, opposite its upper opening, nine hundred talents. There was some debate over the meaning of the word peristyle, but most agreed it meant the round stone slab laid upon the cistern's mouth with a hole in the middle of the stone. Allegro surmised that this place may have been Kerbet Qumran, where archaeologists have uncovered a watchtower, a water aqueduct, a conduit, and a very noticeable earthquake fissure which runs right through a large reservoir, besides also two courtyards, one of which contains a cistern. The same clue reads, In the mound at Kuleth there are empty libation vessels, contained within a larger jar, and new vessels, all of which being libation vessels, as well as the seventh-year store of produce and the second tithe, lying upon the mouth of the heap, the entrance of which is at the end of the conduit towards its north, there being six cubits till one reaches the cavern used for immersion. The place named Kuleth is mentioned in the Babylonian Talmud Kedushan, being one of the towns in the wilderness that was conquered by Alexander Janius, also known as Yanai, whose military exploits are mentioned by Josephus. Its identification remains unknown, although Israeli archaeologist Boaz Zizu suggests that it is to be sought after in the desert of Samaria. Libation vessels are empty vessels that were once used to contain either vintage wine or olive oil and given either to the priests or used in the temple service, but which same produce was inadvertently mixed with common produce and which rendered the whole unfit for the priest's consumption. The vessels themselves, however, remained in a state of ritual cleanliness. They did figure out that the cistern mentioned in that clue was located on the Temple Mount at a distance of 19 cubits from the gate. The cistern may have been in disuse and was most likely filled in with stones and sealed. Today, there's no cistern shown at that distance from the Golden Gate on the maps listing the cisterns of the Temple Mount. 
which suggests that the cistern may have been concealed from view by filling it with earth and stones. In contrast, if the sense is to the Nicanor Gate, which has since been destroyed, the cistern would have been that which is now called Bur Arumana, the pomegranate well, being a large cistern situated on the southeast platform of the Dome of the Rock. The cistern, one of many in the Temple Mount, is still used today for storing water. The entrance to the cistern is from its far eastern side, where there is a flight of stairs descending in a southerly direction. Clue 17 reads, Between the two houses, with the variant reading meaning between two olive presses, that are in the valley of Achor, in their very midst, buried to a depth of three cubits, there are two pots full of silver. The term the two houses used here is unclear. It can be surmised that it may have meant an exact place between the two most famous towns that begin with the name Beit, Beit Ereva, and Beit Hegla. Both ancient places are in the valley of Achor. Alternatively, Bethabara may have been intended as one of the houses. The word that is used for pots is the same word used in the Aramaic Targum for pots. At the head of the aqueduct that leads down to Sekaka, on its north side, beneath a large stone, dig down to a depth of three cubits, and there are seven silver talents. And the clues go on and on, altogether representing many truckloads of gold and silver, if the Romans didn't find them first. Clue number 27 reads, In the queen's palace on its western side, dig down twelve cubits, and there are twenty-seven talents. The most notable of queens among the Jewish people during the second temple period, and who had a palace built in Jerusalem in the middle of the residential area known as Acre, was Queen Helena of Adiabene. The historian Josephus mentions this queen and her palace, the palace of Queen Helena, in his work, The Jewish War. The Hebrew word used here for palace is Mishkan, literally meaning dwelling place. It literally took years to translate the scroll. The treasure described in the copper scroll consists of vast quantities of gold and silver, as well as many coins and vessels. It is difficult to assess the value of what is described, but it has been valued in the many of millions, if not billions. Archaeological or treasure hunter digs are out of the question in the war-torn areas surrounding Jerusalem, especially the West Bank. Expeditions have tried to locate these stashes during the 60s and 70s and 80s, but not much is available on the outcomes, except that nothing was found. And I'll bet that those expeditions were monitored closely by authorities, who no doubt had officials embedded in those expeditions. Many of the locations used landmarks and vague hints to places which have been lost to time over the past 2,000 years. Old cities were destroyed, waterways were changed, names of places were changed, and landmarks disappeared. There are many theories as to the origin of the treasure, and these have been broken down by Theodore H. Gaster. First, the treasure could be that of the Qumran community. The difficulty here is that the community is assumed to be an ascetic brotherhood, with which vast treasures are difficult to reconcile. Secondly, the treasure could be that of the Second Temple. However, Gaster cites Josephus as stating that the main treasure of the temple was still in the building when it fell to the Romans and also that other Qumranic texts appear to be too critical of the priesthood of the temple for their authors to have been close enough to take away their treasure for safekeeping. Third, the treasure could be that of the first temple, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in 586 B.C. This would not seem to fit with the character of the other scrolls, 
unless perhaps the scroll was left in a cave during the Babylonian exile, possibly with a small community of caretakers who were precursors of the Dead Sea Scrolls community. Fourth, Gaster's own favorite theory is that the treasure is a hoax. And there are other options besides those listed by Gaster. For instance, Manfred Lehman considers it temple contributions collected after 70 CE. Scholars are divided as to what the actual contents are. However, metals such as copper and bronze were a common material for archival records. Along with this, formal characteristics establish a line of evidence that suggests this scroll is an authentic administrative document of Herod's temple in Jerusalem. As a result, this evidence has led a number of people to believe that the treasure really does exist. One such person who believes that is the previously mentioned John Allegro, who in 1962 led an expedition. By following some of the places listed in the scroll, his team excavated some potential burial places for the treasure. However, the treasure hunters turned up empty-handed, and any treasure is still yet to be found. Even if none of the treasures ever comes to light, 3Q15 as a new, long, ancient Hebrew text has significance. For instance, as comparative Semitic languages scholar Jonas C. Grenfield noticed, it has great significance for lexicography. It is more than plausible that the Romans discovered the treasure. Perhaps when the Temple of Herod was destroyed, the Romans went looking for any treasure and riches the Temple may have had in its possession. The Romans might easily have acquired some or all of the treasure listed in the Copper Scroll by interrogating and torturing captives, which was normal practice. According to Josephus, the Romans had an active policy regarding the retrieval of hidden treasure. Another theory is that, after the Roman army left after the siege, Jewish people used the Copper Scroll to retrieve the valuables listed, and spent the valuables on rebuilding Jerusalem. Some notes. Over 4,600 pieces of precious metals are listed on the scroll, which makes the total haul worth well over $1 billion. The Copper Scroll led to one of the biggest treasure hunts in history, with numerous expeditions that have already attempted to find the treasure that it describes. But as mentioned, the clues to where the treasure is are written in such obscure ways that any treasure hunter would have a hard time working it out. Raiders of the Lost Ark could use a sixth sequel. What we've got now is Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Temple of Doom, Last Crusade, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and Dial of Destiny. Now we could add to that the search for the treasure of the Second Temple. Due to the current political situation in that region where the scrolls were found, it's very difficult, many say impossible, to get permission to do any serious excavation work. Which does have one positive... It means that the treasure is still out there somewhere, waiting to be found. And we wish you luck. At this point of the story, I want to add some very important details to kind of fill in the blanks. First, the Roman historian Josephus, who wrote much about the Jews during the siege of Jerusalem, the Jewish wars against the Romans, and the return of the victorious Roman army to Rome, which he witnessed, described the stolen treasures in detail but did not mention any quantity of gold or silver other than solid gold artifacts. In addition to Osephus's accounts, the Bible tells us of fantastic hordes of gold, silver, and treasure which was stolen from the first temple by conquerors and traitors. The Jews were no strangers to disaster and looting of their sacred temple. 
theirs being the richest kingdom anywhere in the world, by some accounts. And they also knew how and where to hide treasure, and left this responsibility in the hands of a very few, as you will hear in a minute. Secondly, the second temple had amassed a huge quantity of treasure, and had very likely buried much of it. It is obvious that if it took 2,000 years to find the key to its location, i.e. the copper scroll, and there are no reports that the treasure was ever found, then it must have been hidden very well. My research led me to Lambert Dolphin's Treasure of the House of the Lord at templemount.org, which I believe you will find very interesting. And here it is, in part. Again, if you want to read the whole article, templemount.org, The Treasures of the House of the Lord. He writes, Many people in the world today are unaware of the splendor and wealth of ancient Israel. In fact, since the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, Israel has been scattered among the nations in loneliness and obscurity. Only in our own generation, since 1948, has this ancient people been reestablished as a modest nation occupying her ancestral lands. Renewed and expanded archaeological studies in the Holy Land are, however, calling attention to the dramatic history of these, Abraham's descendants through his son Isaac, today as never before. The purpose of this article is to describe briefly the wealth of ancient Israel associated with the mystery of the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temples built in Jerusalem. Because the Temple Mount in Jerusalem contains many subterranean chambers now filled with debris, archaeologists and Bible students have asked if it is possible that temple treasures may have been hidden beneath the rock prior to the times of invasion and destruction of Jerusalem by foreign invaders. The principal reference on this subject is the Bible, since few other historical records or trustworthy traditional accounts remain. Although the exact date of the Jewish exodus from Egypt is still in dispute, the books of Exodus and Numbers indicate that approximately 600,000 able-bodied men over age 20, plus women and children, made the 40-year journey from the Nile Delta, then finally up the east side of the Jordan. During their wilderness wanderings, the people of Israel received the Ten Commandments and detailed laws, regulations, and instructions delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses was also instructed to construct a large portable tabernacle, or tent, entrusted to the care of the priests of Aaron. A detailed description of this tabernacle is given in Exodus 25:30. The tabernacle was built by free will offerings donated by the people in such generous amounts that more than enough materials were available. The materials assembled for the tabernacle are described in detail in Exodus 35-38. The total quantity of gold collected was approximately one ton, of silver, three and three-quarter tons, and of bronze, two and a half tons. At today's prices, gold is approximately 500 per troy ounce, or $6,000 per pound, or $12 million per ton. Silver currently is priced around $12 per troy ounce, or $144 per pound, which is $288,000 per ton. Hence, the gold and silver used in the tabernacle of Moses would be worth over $13 million today. The first temple held an enormous quantity of gold and silver by any standard, 100,000 talents of gold. That's 3,750 tons. Value today, $45 billion. One million talents of silver, 37,500 tons. Value today, 10.8 billion in silver. 
In round numbers, the wealth of the first temple was about $56 billion. In addition to all the gold and silver, great quantities of bronze, cedar, iron, and precious stones were contributed. The most holy place of Solomon's temple was lined with cedar from Lebanon and covered with 600 talents of gold. This gold plating alone, about 540,000 troy ounces, would be worth about $270 million today. The doors of the temple were also covered with gold plates. During this period of Israel's history, Solomon's income was 666 talents of gold per year, or about 600,000 troy ounces, worth $300 million per year today. During the reign of Solomon, silver was as common as stone in Jerusalem. Solomon made 200,000 massive shields, each 300 shekels in weight, to hang on the walls of his palace. His ivory throne was overlaid with gold. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of earth in riches and wisdom. In Kings 2, chapter 10, verse 23. The splendor of Solomon's kingdom brought him recognition and fame that attracted much foreign attention. For example, during her visit to test Solomon with hard questions, the Queen of Sheba brought Solomon 120 talents of gold, $54 million worth, and a very great store of spices and precious stones. That was written in Kings 10 and Chronicles 9. The wealth of the first temple was immediately plundered after the death of Solomon. During the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, raided Jerusalem about 925 B.C. and took away treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything, everything he could find. He also took away the shields of gold, 500 of them, which Solomon had made, according to Chronicles 12. According to 2 Chronicles 12, Shishak's army numbered 60,000 horsemen and 1,200 chariots. If each man carried back a hundred pounds of booty, this is only 3,000 tons total of gold and silver. However, the people that were with him were without number, the Lubim, the Sukkim, and the Ethiopians. These people may also have carried off much gold and silver. It seems reasonable that some gold and silver remained in the temple after Shishak's raids. Probably gold would have been taken in preference to silver. The wealth of the temple at the time of Ezekiel was evidently more than enough to incite the covetousness of the king of Babylon so that he hastened to capture Jerusalem after his emissaries brought in the news of the great wealth there. And the fall of Jerusalem occurred in 586 B.C., and that was the destruction of the first temple. And all the treasure that they could find was brought to Babylon. And they burned down the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. The Ark of the Covenant was hidden, and it still hasn't been found. The Jewish prisoners were held for 70 years in Babylon, but they were allowed to return, and they were allowed to carry back at least some of the gold and silver sacred objects to Jerusalem, and that was written in Ezra, chapter 1, verses 5-10. through 10. The list of returned items included a thousand basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 2,410 bowls of silver, and other vessels of gold and silver totaling 5,469 in number. The total number of Jews returning from the Babylon captivity were 42,360, plus 7,337 servants and 200 singers. 
There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 asses in their convoy. And those were the ones who set about rebuilding the temple and the walls. The second temple was modest compared to that of Solomon and was completed in 515 B.C. The second temple contained significant quantities of gold and silver, which appears to have generally increased during the life of the temple. The Roman ruler Herod decided to completely rebuild and enlarge the second temple beginning in his 18th year of reign. That was in 20 B.C. He employed 10,000 workmen and 1,000 wagons. The size of the temple was increased from 17 to 34 acres by excavations in the north and by the building of great retaining walls rising 450 feet from the Kidron Valley in the southeast. Within this area, now measuring 351 yards on the north side, 512 yards on the east, 536 yards on the west, and 309 on the south, rose the temple with its Corinthian columns of bronze, its different courts and gates and gleaming spacious cloisters. It was in this enlarged second temple built by Herod that Jesus was dedicated, and where he later taught and cast out the money changers on two separate occasions. The second temple treasury did benefit from a great influx of gold and silver from all lands contributed by worshippers. Cicero wrote of great influxes of gold to Jerusalem during his lifetime. Gifts other than gold or silver coins were sold, and their value given to the treasury. Another large source of revenue was profit made from the sale of the meat offerings which were prepared by the Levites and sold every day to the offerers. By far the largest sum was probably derived from the half-shekel of temple tribute which was required of every male Israelite of age, including proselytes and slaves. The total sum of gold and silver contributed annually at the time of Jesus has been estimated to be of the order of $500,000 per year. A large fraction of this wealth no doubt accumulated year after year over the lifetime of the Second Temple, which was 515 B.C. to 70 A.D., approximately 600 years. There were numerous temple expenses, but the evidence suggests that the bulk of the income was stored up year after year. Thus the Roman plunder, if they got to it, could well have been worth tens of millions of dollars. The pillaging of the temple, its total destruction, and the burning of Jerusalem, with terrible suffering and loss of life, occurred, as you already know, in 70 A.D. under the Roman general Titus. And that was all written and inventoried in Josephus' Wars of the Jews, as we previously said. Tradition has it that the intense flames of the temple fire melted the gold and silver of the temple so that it ran between the cracks of the rocks, and the Roman soldiers then totally dismantled the temple stone by stone to extract that gold. That's written in Matthew 24, verses 1 and 2. No one seems to know with certainty if any of the vessels or sacred objects from Herod's temple were hidden in subterranean passageways during the long siege of Titus. Most everything of value was most likely carried off to Rome, some say. Remember the description given by Josephus that said that the Romans had captured one solid gold menorah. Solomon had ten solid gold menorahs and lined them up in two rows of five each. That was written in Chronicles 4. That means there were ten six-foot-high solid gold menorahs in the first Jewish temple. 
Each of those solid gold menorahs was so heavy that the temple priests estimated their value at $360 billion each. $2.5 trillion for all ten. Solomon also increased the number of the table of showbreads, which we mentioned previously, to ten. Each of these solid gold tables held twelve loaves of bread. The Temple Institute says that they would have been about five feet high, four feet wide, and four feet long in solid gold. That's $500 billion worth of gold tables. And that doesn't include all the golden bowls, plates, and such that numbered in the thousands. Now we know that Babylon looted the Temple and inventoried everything they stole. But 5,400 of the items that were captured were returned by Cyrus, king of Persia, when he authorized the rebuilding of the temple after Israel's 70 years of captivity, as we mentioned. The Bible is clear that Cyrus returned all that had been stolen, even listing out the items. But none of the ten solid gold menorahs were mentioned, or any tables of showbread on Cyrus's list. Nor was there any mention of the other tens of thousands of gold and silver temple implements, or gold and silver bars from the treasury. Now, since only a small fraction of all that gold and silver went to Babylon, what happened to the rest of it? We're missing the entire fortune that Israel had accumulated under Solomon. In the Jewish Talmud, tradition says that King Hosiah and the temple priests hid the vast treasure, including the Ark of the Covenant, in secret winding passages beneath the Temple Mount, ten years before the first temple's destruction. Well, the Jews are smart people. And Israel did have 140 plus years to think about what to do if Jerusalem was ever conquered like their brothers in the north. And Zechariah, God's prophet of the day, was continually hammering the Israelites to wake up and clean up their sins, or the Lord would allow them to be conquered like their northern brothers. Zechariah, unlike most other prophets, was also a priest. He knew it was possible that Israel was going to be conquered and he would have had first-hand knowledge of the vast riches stored in the temple treasuries. He was in the unique position to approve plans to hide the treasure if it looked imminent that Israel would be conquered. Zechariah would certainly want to protect as much of Israel's riches as he could, including those ten golden menorahs and ten golden tables of showbread, not to mention the hugely important Holy Ark of the Covenant that contained Moses' Aaron's staff and the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. So apparently Zechariah approved the hiding and burying of the temple treasures. And Israel was smart enough to throw the Babylonians a bone. They left in the temple several thousand gold and silver utensils, which would normally be significant spoils of war. And the ruse worked. History tells us that Nebuchadnezzar plundered what they found in the temple and deported Jerusalem's upper-class citizens, like Daniel, to Babylon. But Zechariah hid the rest of the treasures so well it's never been found to this day. Since 1947, in and around Qumran, down by the Dead Sea, thousands of pieces of parchment were found buried in caves in the cliffs surrounding the area, the subject of our story today. Collectively called the Dead Sea Scrolls, their discovery came within months of Israel becoming a fledgling nation again, and Jews today readily admit the discovery helped awaken them around the world to their biblical roots. And in 1952, they found the Copper Scroll. It was found by itself on a carved-out shelf in the back of a cave in the area of Qumran. Because it was written on copper, 
Whoever wrote it thought the contents so valuable that they had to make permanent indentations on metal that would stand the test of time. All the other Dead Sea Scrolls contained Old Testament books, scripture commentaries, and general Jewish life observations, but the Copper Scroll was simply a list of instructions of where tons of gold, silver, and precious stones were buried. As Frank Peretti said in his classic The Chair presentation, you have to have a fixed point of reference to know where to begin any journey, and there are no reference points in the Copper Scroll instructions. Though many have tried, no one yet has been able to figure out the right place to dig. Probably they were written vaguely on purpose, because once they find just one of the 64 locations, they can find the rest of the massive treasure. Biblical archaeologists who've analyzed the Copper Scroll believe it to be written by five different people who apparently were in a hurry to complete the scroll. Hebrew priests normally take great care in making each line perfect, but the Copper Scroll looks as if time was of the essence to complete it. The lines are not uniform. Some letters are hard to read, and there are misspellings. The Copper Scroll is most fascinating because 63 of the 64 locations describe listed staggering quantities of gold and silver. There are even some large unnamed items that very well could be the 10 missing First Temple menorahs and tables of showbread. In total, there was over 345,000 pounds of gold and silver listed, not counting the 10 menorahs and 10 tables of showbread. That's over $5 trillion worth. Maccabees Chapter 2, verse 1, granted it's not part of the inspired Hebrew scripture, but heavily relied on and quoted by Jewish historians, mentions that Jeremiah, another of God's prophets at the same time as Zechariah, made records of the temple inventory. He even warned those helping him make the records not to be led astray in their thoughts upon seeing all the gold and silver. The Maccabean text continues to say that Jeremiah then found a cave to store the treasure, including the Ark of the Covenant, and covered up the entrance, saying the treasure would not be found until God gathers his people together and shows his mercy. Over the last 75 years, several Americans have raised and spent small fortunes looking for the temple treasures in Israel, most notably, as we already heard, John Allegro, but also Vendel Jones, Oren Gutfield, and Jim Barfield. Others, like Randall Price, go on yearly digs to find anything they can, so the area will eventually yield its fruit. In the meantime, with each failure of discovery, the chorus of naysayers who don't believe the treasure is real grows louder and louder. But all that gold and silver is hiding somewhere and will one day be found. Again, so writes Lambert Dolphin, Treasures of the House of the Lord at templemount.org. Now for that added information regarding the Gospel of Mary. My interest in Mary Magdalene popped up again just recently with the Book of Mary, which was discovered in 1896 in a 5th century papyrus codex, which also contained the Apocryphon of John, the Sophia of Jesus Christ, and a summary of the Act of Peter. The Berlin Codex, as it came to be called, was written in Sahidic Coptic. Writings from the Book of Mary were assumed to be those either of or attributed to Mary Magdalene, writings containing her conversations with Jesus and his disciples. It's fascinating stuff. Every now and then, I read some of the Gnostic texts to search for mentions of Jesus. 
The Gnostic texts proclaim to be based on the recollection of apostles such as Thomas and John, and they give us a great picture of what at least one sect of early Christians thought about Jesus and the resurrection, as well as giving us a bird's-eye view of early Christianity and Judaism in the years just before and just after Jesus' death and resurrection. Most Christian churches say that the Gnostic Gospels do not give us an accurate picture of Jesus and the Holy Trinity. Maybe so, but it's always good to gain knowledge, and these texts are an ancient source of it. If you'll bear with me, I'd like to share some of the Gospel of Mary with you. In this Gnostic Gospel, Mary Magdalene appears as a disciple, singled out by Jesus for special teachings. In this excerpt, the other disciples are discouraged and grieving Jesus' death. Mary stands up and attempts to comfort them, reminding them that Jesus' presence remains with them. Peter asks her to tell them the words of Jesus, which she remembers. To his surprise, she does not reminisce about past conversations with Jesus, but claims that Jesus spoke to her that very day in a vision. They were grieved. They wept greatly, saying, How shall we go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel of the kingdom of the Son of Man? If they did not spare him, how will they spare us? Then Mary stood up, greeted them all, and said to her brethren, Do not weep and do not grieve, nor be irresolute, for his grace will be entirely with you and will protect you. But rather let us praise his greatness, for he has prepared us and made us into men. When Mary said this, she turned their hearts to the good, and they began to discuss the words of the Savior. Peter said to Mary, Sister, we know that the Savior loved you more than the rest of women. Tell us the words of the Savior which you remember, which you know, but we do not, nor have we heard them. Mary answered and said, What is hidden from you I will proclaim to you. And she began to speak to them these words. I, she said, I saw the Lord in a vision, and I said to him, Lord, I saw you today in a vision. He answered and said to me, Blessed are you that you did not waver at the sight of me, for where the mind is, there is the treasure. I said to him, Lord, how does he who sees the vision see it through the soul or through the spirit? The Savior answered and said, He does not see through the soul nor through the spirit, but the mind which is between the two, that is what sees the vision. Aha! This one makes me smile. There's that collective conscious that we talked about in a recent podcast. When Mary had said this, she fell silent, since it was to this point that the Savior had spoken with her. But Andrew answered and said to the brethren, Say what you wish to say about what she has said. I, at least, do not believe that the Savior said this, for certainly these teachings are strange ideas. Peter answered and spoke concerning these same things. He questioned them about the Savior. Did he really speak with a woman, without our knowledge, and not openly? Are we to turn about and all listen to her? Did he prefer her to us? Then Mary wept and said to Peter, My brother Peter, what do you think? Do you think that I thought this up myself in my heart, or that I am lying about the Savior? Levi answered and said to Peter, Peter, you have always been hot-tempered. Now I see you contending against the woman like the adversaries. But if the Savior made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Savior knows her very well. That is why he loved her more than us. 
rather let us be ashamed and put on the perfect man and acquire him and preach the gospel, not laying down any other rule or other law beyond what the Savior said. And they began to go forth to proclaim and to preach. Thanks for staying with me on that story. I think, since most of this story is based on missing treasure, I wanted to showcase a piece of the found treasure, of which was the Gnostic Gospels and the Gospel of Mary. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. I hope you enjoyed In Search of the Copper Scroll Treasure. It's an interesting story, and one that I wasn't aware of. If you enjoyed this episode, or any of our episodes, please do send us a review for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Until next time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.